This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. They reset the time, so. Good morning, Park Church. Our scripture reading for today is John 13, verses 31 through 35. Again, John 13, 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you. Good morning, Park Church. How are you? So good to see you. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing on. We're actually finishing up our three-part series that we've been calling uh, The Mission of God. And um, we are, as you already heard, going to be focusing in on John chapter 13, uh, 31 to 35, really mostly focusing on verses 34 uh, to 35. But before we jump into that, I want to ask you a question. Are right, you guys ready to think? Right? Good? Okay, here we go. That didn't sound very encouraging at all. <laughs> ready to think? Crickets, crickets. Okay. Let's get those minds engaged. Here we go. Here's a question. What do you want to be known for? Right? What do you want to be known for? Think of the different areas of your life. What do you want to be known for maybe as a student? Uh, as a parent, as a spouse, maybe uh, an employee or an employer, coworker, neighbor, friend, maybe you're an artist. What do you want to be known for? So take a second and think, what do you want to be known for in all those different areas of your life? Now, while you're thinking about that, here's why that matters. Here's why that, that question and how you answer it matters. Because what you want to be known for will determine what you put your energy towards. And in a sense, it's what you're going to dedicate your life to. So if you want to be known as a diligent student, uh, then you're going to focus your energy towards doing really great at school. If you want to be known as a friendly neighbor, guess what? You're going to be a friendly neighbor, right? If you want to be known as a hardworking employee with integrity, that's going to be the focus at work. What you want to be known for will determine how you go about living your life. Now, when it comes to being a Christian or a follower of Jesus, same question. What do you want to be known for? Change it up a little bit. What do you want to be known for by those who are not yet followers of Jesus? So if you're here and you are a Christian, how do you want to be known by those who are not yet Christians? And it matters how you think about that. 
It matters because what you want to be known for will determine what you focus your energy towards. It's going to determine how you live out your faith in front of a watching world. It really matters. So when the non-believers in your life think about you as an individual Christian, and when they think about the church, right, when they think about Park Church, what do you want them to think about? How do you want to be known by them? And how do you want Park Church to be known by those who are not yet followers of Jesus? Just take a second, think about it. How do you want to be known? How do you want Park Church to be known? But maybe there's a more important question. I think that's an important question, but maybe there's one that kind of trumps that one. Sorry. Uh, supersedes that one. Uh, some of you got it. Okay. Instead of asking, there you go. What do we want to be known for by those who are not Christians? What we really need to be asking is what does Jesus want Christians and churches to be known for by those who are not Christians, right? In other words, what does Jesus want? What does Jesus want Park Church to be known for? What does Jesus want you as an individual believer to be known for? If you're a follower of Christ, that's really ultimately what matters most. What does Jesus want? Well, you saw it in John chapter 13, Jesus actually answers that question. And what you're going to see in that answer is not what political party you're most closely aligned with, what's your view on vaccines or masks, or what your opinion on any other kind of hot button topic issue of the day is. Rather, what Jesus wants us to be known for is how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, how we love each other. That's what Jesus wants his church to be known for, how we love each other. Notice that in verses 34 to 35, see it right there in the scriptures. Jesus said, a new commandment. Notice he's not re recommending, it's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And here you go, this is the big, phew, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this, and this is amazing, by this, all people, all different kinds of people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There it is. It's, it's really not open for debate. It's pretty clear. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what should be the distinguishing mark of the church in the eyes of the non-believing world is this. It ought to be how we love each other, how we serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So if love for each other is how Jesus wants the world to know that we are actually followers of Jesus, we better understand what kind of love he's talking about, right? There's all kinds of different definitions of love in our culture, in our world. So what kind of love is Jesus talking about? Look again in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and here's the kind of love, just as I have loved you. Wow. What kind of love are we talking about? Christ-like love. 
you also are to love one another. Now, he said it's a new commandment. And that seems weird on kind of first glance, right? Hasn't Jesus already talked about this? Didn't Jesus already tell us that we are called to love our neighbors as much as ourselves? And Jesus just carried that forward from the Old Testament. It came straight out of Leviticus. So like we've already heard that. That's not new. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not new. And then he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount and says, love your enemies as well. So love your neighbors as much as you love yourself. Love your neighbors or love your enemies as well. So what makes this new is not that we're called to love others. That's not new. But rather, it's the quality or or the type of love or the depth of the love. That's what makes it new. We're, We're commanded to love like Jesus loved us. It's Christ-like love, Jesus says, that will get the attention of the world and open the door to them, possibly even coming into faith in Jesus themselves. See, and here's something I think we forget so often as Christians. The greatest observable apologetic the church has today is in Christ-like love for one another. That's the greatest argument we have that's visible, that's actually visible, because I would say actually the greatest apologetic is the empty tomb, but we don't get to see that, right? Like we're not seeing that right now. Most people will never see that. So the greatest visible apologetic we have right here, right now for us is this living, life-giving love for one another. That's the kind of love Jesus is calling us to. So Tertullian, an ancient historian, wrote back eh, roughly 8,200 in reference to the power of Christ-like love for one another as he was observing the church in the ancient world. He says this, it is mainly the deeds of love that are so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. In other words, he's saying, This is how the culture, the Roman Empire, knows we are followers of Jesus, but how we love each other. Isn't that amazing? That was 8,200. They know by how we love each other, this noble love. He says, see how they love one another. See how they are ready even to die for one another. Now, let me ask you, when was the last time you were willing to die for a brother or sister in Christ in this room? Probably been a little while, like never, right? But, but their love was so deep and so rich that they were even willing, like Christ, to die for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that was the outside world. That was the Roman Empire that was looking in, saying that about the early church. Uh, Gary Berg, a New Testament scholar, based on kind of that quote by Tertullian, said this, in the earliest church, the social caring and commitment of Christians to one another was a profound testimony in a Roman world with its sharp social divisions. You think the world's divided now, you need to read up your history. Roman Empire was a mess. Nothing astonishes a fractured world as much as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. He goes on. 
There are many places you can go to find communities of shared interest. Man, isn't that true of Denver? Right? If you like to bike, you got your crew. If you like to hike, you got your crew. If you like to, to go from bar to bar, you got your crew. Like, like if you like, there's, there's all kinds of different interest groups that people can join to be a part of, of community based around kind of interest, right? And that's true in so many places. But he goes on, there are many places you can go to find people just like yourself who live for sports or music, or gardening, I guess. Um, so he said, love you. Or politics, right? That's a big one. But it is the mandate of the church to become a community of love, a, a circle of Christ followers who invest in one another because Christ has invested in them. Isn't that beautiful? We invest in one another because Christ has invested in us. People who exhibit love not based on the mutuality and attractiveness of its members, but on the model of Christ who washed the feet of everyone, including his betrayer, Judas. It's heavy. So what is so unique about Christ-like love among Christians that will cause the world to stop and take notice. Uh, I'm just gonna give you three, all right? Like this subject, the, the love of Christ, we could never exhaust. So, so let me give you three that are implications from John 13, all right? The first one is this, Christ-like love is humble. Christ-like love is humble. When was the last time you heard non-believers blown away by how humble we are as Christians and how humble the American church is? Probably been a while. It's been a long time since I've heard anything like that. I don't know if I've ever heard it, actually. In contrast to that, listen to the Apostle Paul, who first describes uh, the humility that Christians are called to and then why that's the case. Philippians 2, uh, verses 3 through 8, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Whoa! Nothing! Do nothing! But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That would solve 95% of the problems in church right there. If we would just count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, now he switches, switches it to Christ. Here's why. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, right? God the Son, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he, he didn't cling on to heaven and say, no, I can't leave and go down and become a human and live and die for the people that you love. I can't, no, I'm gonna grasp onto that. No, that's not what he did. But rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For God to humble himself by taking on humanity, that's one thing. 
to allow himself to be murdered, that's something completely different. And then on top of that, how he was murdered, falsely accused, first betrayed by Judas, falsely accused, whipped, scourged, flesh ripped off his body, spit upon, beard ripped out, beaten with a cane, and then eventually nailed to a cross. That's how humble the God of the universe is. That's what his love looks like. Christ-like love is humble. It's humble. We, we actually see an example of this at the beginning of chapter 13. If you want to look up in chapter 13, a little further, the beginning there, verses 1 through 5, where you see Jesus having the Last Supper with his disciples. It was the Passover meal. And after he knew, okay, Judas is going to betray me. He's about to leave. Now it's time. The, the final part of my mission is, is here. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be accused. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. Like he knew that was all coming. It tells you there right there in those verses. It says he stopped, went over, got a bucket of water, took off his outer garment, got down on his knees and washed the dirty, stinky, smelly feet of the disciples. Y'all, I hate feet. I hate feet. They're disgusting. But imagine nasty, sweaty dudes, right, disciples, wearing their Birkenstocks in the middle of the desert without socks, hopefully without socks. So like, you guys are too young, don't do that, all right? And like sweaty and dirty and stinky and smelly all day long. And then you have God in the flesh kneeling down and washing their feet, even the feet of Judas, the one he knew was going to betray him, and Peter, who was going to deny him three times, and all the rest of the disciples who ran away when Jesus was arrested. That is humble love. That is Christ-like love. So what would cause the unbelieving world to stop and take notice of Christians and the church? Here it is, humility. Just a little bit would go a long way in this culture. Imagine if Christians were known for how we humbly love and serve each other. Imagine that's, if the world was looking in, Man, I'm praying, I'm praying that there are, are those who are not yet followers of Christ in the room. I'm praying and hoping you're seeing we love each other. Man, it's, it's hard to experience that sometimes in a big group like this. So we, we want to encourage you, invite you, keep coming, keep coming, get into some groups, get to know people. But imagine if, if the world could see us humbly love and serve each other. Imagine the impact the church could have in the culture if Christians were known for not speaking first but rather listening first. Imagine if the church was a place that was known for putting the needs of others first, rather than seeking to have all of our preferences and opinions catered to. Imagine if that's what the church was like. If the non-believing world saw a church like that, what difference, and I'm just asking the question, what difference would that make in how they consider the claims of Christ? What difference would that make in how they view Jesus? That's really ultimately what matters most. So Christ-like love is humble. 
Christ-like love is also sacrificial. Feel free to write that down if you're taking notes. Christ-like love is sacrificial. Notice back in John 13, verses 31 and 32. And when he had gone out, right, speaking of Judas, had left to betray Jesus. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. That now is amazing, right? It's almost like now finally that I'm about to be betrayed and I'm about to be arrested and crucified and die. Now, finally, I'm being glorified. But that's not actually what's going on. The word now there in the original language is in the aorist tense, which means it's a past action that has ongoing ramifications. So in other words, Jesus has been being glorified. God has been glorified through everything that Jesus has been doing, right? All the miracles, right? You know, feeding thousands and thousands of people from a few fish and a few loaves of bread, walking on water, raising the dead. Like, yes, yes, yes. God's being glorified through that. God's being glorified through just how he lived, what he said. Yes, yes, yes. But the idea is now it's all culminating It's all coming to its conclusion. The glory of God is being uh, heightened now. Why? Because he's about to go to his cross. Walking on water, that makes sense. Raising people from the dead, that makes sense. Feeding thousands of people from a few pieces of like a Lunchable, that makes sense. (laughs) I get God getting glorified from that, but glorified by dying naked, on a cross, after you've been spit on, beaten, and your body ripped apart? That's unique love. That's sacrificial love. John will go on to say in his letter later in the New Testament, 1 John three sixteen, John said it like this, by this we know love. This is how we know what love is. This is how, right here, that he laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, like, the most natural, obvious response to God in the flesh laying down his life for us, humbly loving and serving, sacrificially loving us, it only makes sense that we would love our brothers and sisters the same way, sacrificially. Humbly and sacrificially. He goes on to say in um, chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word is a really, really important theological word. That means he was the sacrifice that took the judgment upon himself that we deserve for our sin and rebellion against God. That's what propitiation is. And he did that for us sacrificially. He goes on, beloved, if God so loved us, like if he loved us like that, God took the judgment that he was pouring out on us that we should deserve. He took it on himself. Like if if he loves us like that, we also ought to love one another. It just makes sense. We ought to love one another if we're loved that way. And here's an amazing verse. Listen to this. No one has ever seen God, right? Why is that? It's talking about God the Father here. God is a spirit. God the Father is a spirit. 
Uh, scripture says if you worship him, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. So no one has actually physically seen the Father because he, he doesn't have a physical presence. He's a spirit. But if we love one another, God abides in us, this invisible God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And some translations will say, basically, his love is manifested through us. The implication is this invisible God can be somewhat made visible through a church that sacrificially loves and serves each other the way God loved and served us in Christ. Does that make sense? Christ-like love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. See, to love like Jesus will cost us something. Maybe this is why it's so rare. It actually costs to love like Jesus. It's gonna cost us time. It's definitely gonna cost us comfort. It's going to cost us literally money. Uh, it's going to cost us not being able to, you know, do our agenda. And this is one we will not like, some of us. It's going to cost us the need to always be right and to win every argument. And cost us the right that we think we have, which we really don't have, but we think we do, to not forgive those who have wronged us. See, sacrificial love doesn't let us, no, I don't, get, I don't have to forgive them because, nope, nope. Why? Because Jesus doesn't love like that. He didn't wait around for us to get cleaned up. Okay, now I can love him. He didn't wait around for us to ask him, hey, I, Jesus, will you forgive me? Nope, like he came first. On Monday, October 2nd, 2006, a man by the name of Charles Roberts entered a one-room Amish school building in a small little Pennsylvania town called Nickel Mines. And after telling the teacher and all the boys in the classroom, so the teacher and the boys, told them to leave, he proceeded to shoot the 10 remaining girls, killing five of them and injuring the other five. And then he proceeded to end his own life. They came to find out later on the reason he targeted the girls in the room that day was because he was so angry and bitter towards God that God had allowed his young daughter to die two years before. So he justified his rage and killed those little girls. So as you can imagine, after the story began to break, and I know that's heavy, but it, trust me, it's going to illustrate this for us. After the story began to break, media from around the world flocked to this little Amish community in this little Pennsylvania town, due obviously to the extreme nature of the story, but the, the, the attention pretty quickly shifted from the horrific tragedy and the violence to how the Amish community itself was responding to this terrible loss of life and the violence. Namely, how they were responding with acts of 
forgiveness and grace and kindness towards the wife, now widow, and family of the shooter. Well, what, did, what were they doing? Well, they were actually bringing meals to the family of the shooter. They were gathering in prayer groups in the front yard and around the house of the family of the shooter. And this one just baffles me as a parent. And six days after family members had buried their own daughters, they attended the funeral for the man who murdered their children. That was six days after. Money was flooding into the community from around the world because people just wanted to help. Medical bills were mounting, but those family, families of the, of the girls that survived and had all kinds of medical issues and, and expenses from that, they made sure, those families made sure that the family of the murderer received some of those funds. This is almost not even human. This kind of grace and forgiveness shocked the world. Shocked the world. And in their book, Amish Grace, which by the way, I'd recommend anybody read, read this book. It's called Amish Grace. You can get it on Amazon. Three psychologists try to discover what it is, uh, what is it in a community that could cause such a response of love, grace, and forgiveness. And their conclusion was that what made it possible for that community to respond like that can't actually be generated by the current secular culture. It can't. Why? Because it flowed from their understanding of the love and forgiveness of God in Christ and how that is the basis for how we're to love, forgive, and extend grace to those who have wronged us. It's about God's love and how the how God defines love and how God has expressed love in the secular culture doesn't have any of that. So forgiveness eclipsed that tragedy and the violence. Even three weeks after the shooting, the two words Amish forgiveness had appeared in 2,900 news stories worldwide and on 534 websites. Isn't that amazing? I think Jesus said something like, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And hear this, by this, that kind of love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is a modern day example of that being true. So Christ-like love is humble, Christ-like love is sacrificial, and then lastly, Christ-like love is unifying. It's humble, sacrificial, and unifying. Now, if you've been with us as we've been walking through Matthew's gospel, which by the way, we're going to start back uh, in Matthew next week. I'm excited to do that. That'll be next week. You, you know, though, that... Jesus picked like a crazy bunch of guys to come together and have 
like unity around the mission of Jesus, right? Uh, the most extreme example is this. One guy was a tax collector. His name was Matthew. Um, and what the, the Jewish world hated the tax collectors because they were Jews who worked for Rome, right? And they would collect the taxes from Rome. But on top of that, they would actually kind of add more to it to, to pad their own pocket, to line up their own bank account, to get rich off the oppression of the Roman Empire over the Jews. And then on the opposite side of that, you had a guy named Simon, right? He was called a zealot. And a zealot was like the exact opposite of a tax collector because a zealot had dedicated his life to the overthrow and oppression of the Roman Empire. And Jesus brings them all together, all these guys from all these different walks of life, all these different political views, all these different socioeconomic backgrounds, everything. And after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, those disciples went out with many others and turned the world upside down. We are here because of their efforts. There is power in unity. And there is power when the world looks in and sees people from all different walks of life, ethnicities, gender, socioeconomic situations, political leanings, all worshiping Jesus and loving and serving each other. The world's blown away by that. And it can even cause people to believe that Jesus was truly sent by God. Now, what gives me the authority to say that? Jesus himself. Notice John 17. If you want to turn a few pages to the right, go there. John 17. He's right in the middle of his high priestly prayer. He's been praying for his disciples, but then he shifts. He begins to pray for people who would believe following their words. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be us and all the Christians who've been around since the disciples. That they may all be what? One, unified. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's how powerful unity is in the church, that the world may believe that Jesus is actually sent by God. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So our model of unity is actually Father, Son, Spirit, the Trinity. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Not just one, not just you, like perfectly one. That's Jesus' goal. And that will happen when he returns. That, that's not going to be happening anytime until Jesus comes back. But we can grow in that. We can pursue that. That ought to be our goal here and now. So that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. There you go. That's how powerful unity among Christians is. So let me ask you a question. <laughs> Based on the social media presence of many of us as professing Christians, do you think that the world would say Christians and churches are unified? That's a joke, right? Like, of course not. Um, 
I'm going to let you into my life a little bit. About a month ago, I completely quit all social media, right? Now, I'm not saying that to pat me on the back and I'm super spiritual or, or like some kind of righteous thing. No, here's why I quit it, because I kept getting pissed off. I kept getting angry. And I found myself just wanting to respond and argue. Like I see that, I'm like, oh, that's so stupid. Why would they say that? I'm like, no. Like this battle in me, right? And there was very little righteous response in that. It was mostly, I just want to zing them, right? There was a little bit of, I don't want everyone to think that all Christians think that way. But mostly it was like, that's dumb. I want to, you know, slam them. And so I was like, I can't do this. I can't, no, this is not how I want to be. I don't want to be this guy. So just got rid of it off my phone, all that. So if you've been trying to contact me through social media, sorry. I got an email, send me an email. See, if we're going to love one another the way Jesus loves us, then we're going to pursue unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We aren't going to make our differences the biggest issues. We're going to make Jesus our primary focus, his kingdom, the primary focus, and his mission, the primary focus, and everything else secondary, everything else. And then the world would be able to look in and see the difference that Jesus makes and maybe be willing to consider his claims for themselves. Wouldn't that be amazing? I'm not making, it sounds so utopian, doesn't it? It sounds so, like I'm such a hippie up here. But the reality is that's exactly what Jesus said. So we're going to have to take it up with him if we don't like how that sounds. So what do we do when we disagree? Because we're going to disagree, right? This is not some nebulous unity, right? We actually care about stuff. There there are certain doctrines we can't let go of or we're no longer Christians. Like, there really are some things like that. There are times we're going to disagree about moral issues or ethical issues, like those kind of things, and they matter. Among Christians, we're going to disagree. So how do we disagree uh, and not just ignore those issues, but how can we still show oneness in those areas where we differ the most? Let me give you a quick list of Uh, things that I think will be helpful for you. This is not original with me. It came from the book, The Mark of the Christian by Francis Schaeffer. I have read and given out so many copies of this book over my years of ministry. It's really small. You can read it really quickly. It's like eight bucks on Amazon. It should be like two bucks. I don't know why it's eight. Anyway, um, it's, (laughs) it's the content. That's why. It is awesome. And it's all based on what we're looking at, John 13 and then John 17. And it gives this great um, section in there on how to handle conflict among believers and still pursue unity and oneness, all right? Because this is, man, this is where it gets real right here, because this is going to happen. This is where we struggle, all right? So these are kind of attitudes and postures to take as you enter into trying to handle our differences. One, and I'm going to use his words, here's what he says, there should be some regret In other words, we should mourn a little bit that Christians are so divided, okay? And and here's a quote from what he says there. First, we should never come to such difference with true Christians without regret and without tears. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Believe me, evangelicals often have not shown it. Amen. 
We rush in being very, very pleased, it would seem at times, to find other people's mistakes. You know anybody like that? They just can't wait to tell you you're wrong. We build ourselves up by tearing other people down. This can never show a real oneness among Christians. So enter in with a bit of regret, humility. Number two, enter in with this. The bigger the difference, the more love is needed. The bigger the issue is, the bigger the love. He says, in proportion to the gravity of, which, of what is wrong between true Christians, it is important consciously to exhibit a seeable love to the world. Isn't that awesome? I love those words. A seeable love. Not all differences among Christians are equal. Yes. There are some that are very minor. Others are overwhelmingly important. The more serious the differences become, the more important it becomes that we look to the Holy Spirit to enable us to show love to the Christians with whom we must differ. And there are times where we're going to have to disagree with people to be faithful to what we believe the Scripture teaches. But man, we've got to be leaning heavy on the Holy Spirit. Amen? So we do that well. Three, it's going to be costly love. It's going to require costly love. Back to that idea of sacrificial love. It's going to require costly love. He says we must show a practical demonstration of love in the midst of the dilemma, even when it's costly. The word love should not just be a banner. In other words, we must do whatever must be done at whatever cost to show love. And that is a great example of what the Amish community did with the man who killed their kids. Costly love. Four, last one. Approach the problem with a desire to solve the issue rather than a desire to win the argument. Amen, wives? Yeah. My wife gave me that point uh, for me. So there you go. No, I'm kidding. But it's true like marriage counseling right now too. Like enter into the problem with a desire to solve the issue rather than a desire to win the argument. We all love to win, chief offender right here. In fact, there is nobody who loves to win more than the theologian, which is awesome because Schaefer was a theologian. The history of theology is all too often a long exhibition of a desire to win, true. But we should understand that what we are working for in the midst of our difference is a solution. That's what we're going for. A solution that will give God the glory, that will be true to the Bible, but will exhibit the love of God simultaneously with his holiness. Those things are not mutually exclusive. You can be faithful to scripture. You can be faithful to the holiness of God and not be a jerk. Like, yes, how do we know it's true? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And we have the indwelling spirit inside of us to empower us to live that way. So Jesus prayed that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Now, I'm almost done. At this point, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with the mission of the church? 
I thought this was a mission series and you haven't even talked about mission at all. Good question. That means you're paying attention. That's good. But if your understanding of mission is only what happens outside the church, what happens when you're at work or in your neighborhood or wherever you find yourself during the week, then you're right. I haven't talked about mission in that sense yet. But when you understand that mission actually encompasses how we as brothers and sisters relate to one another and that Jesus intends for his church to be a visible display of his love for the world, then we absolutely have been talking about the mission of the church. That's true because our humble, sacrificial, unifying love for one another is intended to be the soil from which mission grows. It doesn't come out of the latest book about church mission. It comes out of a community of people who humbly, sacrificially, unifyingly love each other. So the question is, are you and I connected to and committed to a body of believers in such a way that our non-believing friends are able to look in and get a better understanding of God's love? Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Let me say it another way. Would the world be able to look at our love for other Christians and say, I know they are followers of Jesus because of how they love each other. Jesus said that would be the result if we loved each other the way he loved us. So may it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to passages like this in your word and just say, wow, God, we, we fall so far short of that. Me, personally, I don't come anywhere near your standard on loving other believers. So often I do not love the way you love. God, I ask for forgiveness for that. And I'm sure if my brothers and sisters in this room were honest, they, they would be able to say they fall short as well. It's true. We all do. And so, God, we want to be reminded in this moment of your grace and your mercy. We want to be reminded that, Jesus, you came and obeyed this command and all the other commands for us so that through faith, by your grace, your obedience is now our obedience. And the Father sees us as having fully obeyed this command, even though we haven't, God. May that not cause us to just sit back and be lazy Christians, but rather may that flood our souls with so much love, so much joy, so much gratitude that we, for the rest of our lives, want to pursue loving our brothers and sisters this way for the glory of God and the good of the world and our own joy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. 
Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.